1: Good morning, Lighthouse community. We are so glad you're here this morning. And whether you're here in the house physically or if you're watching from places like Medellin, Colombia, we have a group watching from down there now, or people from other places like Fostoria. we're just glad to be together on a Sunday morning. And we hope you all feel very, very welcome. Uh, We're here beginning uh, or ending a series called Face to Face. We're on the fourth week of that series. Pastor Fritz and and Ben Thiel have been doing some great teachings on people from the Bible, uh, looking at their lives, exposing their lives in a way that it's helpful to us as believers in Christ. And we're going to continue that this week by talking about a man whose name is never revealed in the pages of the Scripture. My name is Larry Sewell. And I'm one of the elders here at the Lighthouse. I'd like to begin today by asking you a question. It's a deeply personal question. It's a question I've thought about myself lots of times. And this is a question Do you think that the Holy Spirit can use your faith story to change the eternal life of someone else? Do you think your story can actually change the life of another person? Sometimes I've heard people uh, talk about their stories and they're they're a little bit embarrassed because there's something in their story they would they would prefer maybe not to tell. Or some people uh, have a part of their past that's painful and if they could forget that part, they would forget it. They just don't want to tell their story because that stuff might come out. But but maybe, and just maybe God wants to use your story to change the life of another person, to, to introduce somebody to the hope that you have in Jesus. Whether you know it or not, if you are a genuine Christian, you have a story to tell. You have uh, the Holy Spirit in you. You have, you have God in you. And by virtue of that, you have something to say. Christians possess... As it were, cool water in a desert. This world is a desert with many, many thirsty people who are looking for hope. And Christians have the answer to that thirst. I want to dive in in a little bit to a story in Luke chapter 8. Uh, We're going to begin at verse 26 there in just a few minutes. Uh, But first I want to spend a little time uh, doing some background leading up to the event that we're going to have somebody read in just a few minutes. Now to do that, I want to go to Luke uh, chapter 8 verse 22. And these are the words of Jesus to his disciples. He says this. Let's cross over to the other side of the lake. Now, that doesn't seem like a very big statement, right? Let's cross over to the other lake. No big deal, right? Well, um, it's actually a kind of a code. It tells us something remarkable about Jesus. It tells us something big about the culture of the day, and it tells us a great deal about the gospel itself. That little phrase, let's go to the other side of the lake, The Sea of Galilee is actually just a little inland lake. It's about eight miles across. And it's the place where the early part of Jesus' ministry occurred. Now on the west side and the north side of the Sea of Galilee, you find uh, the Jewish neighborhoods. That's where all the Jews live, on the west and on the north. On the east side of the Sea of Galilee, uh, that's where the Gentiles live. That's where the heathens live. Now there's something you have to know. Jews Don't go to the other side of the lake. That was uh, culturally understood. They didn't cross, they just didn't go to the other side of the lake. This was settled culture during the day. Just like today in the United States, this was a polarized culture. There are people on different sides of the argument, and they don't talk to each other and they don't cross. Because there are those people over there, and there are these people over here, and they don't cross in between. The Jews and the Gentiles, they don't want to talk. They want to stay separate. Now, the power in the day was vested with the Jewish leaders. They were traditionalists. They had all of the religious tradition. They had power in society, Now, you remember probably from the book of Acts and maybe from the Gospels, whenever Jesus and the disciples were engaged in the Gospel, there's this tremendous pushback against them by the Jewish community. That was the religious establishment. That's where all the social power was in society. And they always pushed back when Jesus and the disciples were to speak. In fact, what they were trying to do was create silence. They didn't want Jesus, and they didn't want the disciples talking At all. In fact, they plotted to try to create silence, and at the end, they crucified Jesus, and yet, that didn't stop the gospel from going forward. Very simply, the Jews thought that they were superior to the Gentiles in every way possible. That's what's going on in the society. My favorite account that illustrates this, uh, what's going on among the cultural groups of the day, was the story of the calling of Matthew. Remember, Matthew was one of the apostles. He was a tax collector, a Jewish man collecting money for the Romans. <laughs> okay? He wasn't liked in his society at all. Uh, Jesus calls him to be a disciple. And Matthew did what Matthew does. He calls a party. He invites Jesus, he invites Jesus' friends, the disciples, he invites all of his friends to his house for a barbecue. Now, this is how his friends are described in the Bible. They're tax collectors and other disreputable sinners. So that's who's there, Jesus, the disciples, and these guys. Now, the religious leaders of the day saw this thing going on, and they called the disciples over and they said this, or asked this question to Jesus. Why does your teacher eat with such scum? Boom. Mic drop. That's the feeling that was going on between Jews and Gentiles of the day. They hated people who were different than them. Now, Jesus didn't back, round, back down. He told them, you know, I didn't come to call people who thought they were righteous. I came to call sinners. Who know people who know their sinners, people who need repentance and understand that Jesus uh, is—he's entering in the uh, the kingdom of God, and the religious leaders—they're just holding on to tradition. They're trying to keep uh, new ideas at bay. Jesus is very clear in his teaching. There is hope for every single person who recognizes their sin and comes to Jesus for forgiveness there's restoration, there's hope. That's at the heart of our Savior. So when Jesus tells his disciples, let's cross over to the other side of the lake, um, they might not know it, but they're taking the gospel with them to the other side, to the Gentile side of the lake. Now, I wish I could have been there to watch Peter's face when Jesus explains what they're going to do. You know, it's like Jesus, are you new around here? Don't you understand that Jews don't go there? You know, that's where the heathens live. That's where they eat McRib sandwiches. We don't go there. <clears throat> They've unearthed some fishing boats of the day, and these are little 25 foot boats, maybe five feet wide. And can you imagine this scene? You got 13 disciples. You got Jesus and the 12 disciples, 13 Jewish men in a boat leaving the Jewish side. Cutting across the lake to the Gentile side in plain view of the whole community. Can you imagine that? They probably laughed at him. These idiots. Get in a boat going to the other side, the wrong side of the lake. On the way, there's this enormous storm. This is something that happens on that body of water. And the wind and the waves are crushing this boat, and the disciples all think they're gonna die. And Jesus calms the sea. He stops the wind. He stops the waves. He calms the sea. And the response of the disciples to that is cryptic. You know, they ask this question, who is this man? Even the wind and the waves obey him. Who is this man? Peter, Andrew, James, and John. Those four disciples we know were fishermen. They knew this body of water, and that's not the way this body of water reacts. Who is this man? He can stop the wind and the waves. How crazy is that? By this point in Luke's gospel, the disciples had seen Jesus cast out demons. They had seen him cure leprosy and other kinds of diseases. They'd seen paralysis solved. The raging storm had just been calmed. They also heard him teach. They heard him teach things like forgiveness And the sorrow that waits for people who put their trust in riches or status in society. He talked about loving enemies. He talked about not judging other people. They would have heard all of those things being taught by Jesus, and they would have seen all of his actions. They heard Jesus praise the faith of a non-Jewish person who believed. They watched Jesus raise a man from the dead. They actually heard him tell one man, your sins are forgiven. Now, nobody can forgive sins except God. And that's what Jesus said. Your sins are forgiven. Who is this man who calms seas, raises dead people, and forgives sin? He does all those things, and they've just seen this remarkable miracle in their fear. The the water has been stilled. All of that leads up to the account that we're going to talk about today. I've asked Yvonne Anderson if she would read God's Word today. Yvonne is part of our teaching team here at Lighthouse, and she's going to read Luke chapter 8, beginning at verse 26 through verse 39.
0: Beginning in verse 26. So they arrived in the region of the Gerasenes, across the lake from Galilee. As Jesus was climbing out of the boat, a man who was possessed by demons came out to meet him. For a long time, he had been homeless and naked, living in the tombs outside the town. As soon as he saw Jesus, he shrieked and fell down in front of him. He screamed, why are you interfering with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? Please, I beg you, don't torture me. For Jesus had already commanded the evil spirit to come out of him. This spirit had often taken control of the man. Even when he was placed under guard and put in chains and shackles, he simply broke them and rushed out into the wilderness, completely under the demon's power. Jesus demanded, what is your name? Legion, he replied, for he was filled with many demons. The demons kept begging Jesus not to send them into the bottomless pit. There happened to be a large herd of pigs feeding on the hillside nearby, and the demons begged him to let them enter into the pigs, so Jesus gave them permission. Then the demons came out of the man and entered the pigs, and the entire herd plunged down the steep hillside into the lake and drowned. When the herdsmen saw it, they fled to the nearby town and the surrounding countryside, spreading the news as they ran. People rushed out to see what had happened. A crowd soon gathered around Jesus, and they saw the man who had been freed from the demons. He was sitting at Jesus' feet, fully clothed and perfectly sane, and they were all afraid. Then those who had seen what happened told the others how the demon-possessed man had been healed, and all the people in the region of the Gerasenes begged Jesus to go away and leave them alone, for a great wave of fear swept over them. So Jesus returned to the boat and left, crossing back to the other side of the lake. The man who had been freed from the demons begged to go with him. But Jesus sent him home, saying, No, go back to your family and tell them everything God has done for you. So he went all through the town, proclaiming the great things Jesus had done for him.
1: Let's pray together. God, it is our prayer today. That in a miraculous way, your Holy Spirit would open our hearts and our minds to the truth of your character. That we would see you in this account of this man. And that you would draw us to yourself. I pray, pray that you would uh, take away a real and perceived uh, interruptions and, uh, and conflicts. And let us dial into the truth of Scripture, I pray. I pray all this through Jesus. Amen. Now today, we're going to spend a few minutes just talking about the narrative, and then I'd like to make some comments about, uh, some theological comments about sin and forgiveness, and then finally some practical uh, comments. As I mentioned, the Gentiles were on the east side, and the Jews were on the west side, and these were very different people. There was a lot of unknown between what happened on the opposite sides of this little lake, uh, people on the west side, the Jewish side, probably knew stories about heathens and demons and all kinds of stuff that goes on on the other side of the lake, places that they just didn't go. Upon arrival, I suspect the disciples were pretty happy to be on solid ground. They'd just come through this terrible storm Jesus had calmed, and I suspect that they were pretty happy to be on solid ground right up until the time their worst fear came true. A man possessed by demons meets them at the boat dock. This man had to be unsettling. I mean, he's described as a man who wore no clothes. He cut himself with stone, screaming into the night, completely uncontrollable, completely uh, controlled by evil. He lived in a burial uh, tomb in a cemetery, completely separate from the people. All three Gospels talk about this account, and there's, you can create kind of a composite view of what this man was like from those accounts. It's interesting that the demon, or demons in this man recognized who Jesus was. Jesus, Son of the Most High God, they said. The disciples on the way over, after seeing the miracles of Jesus, were asking the question, who is this man? Yet the demons... Who were torturing this man? They knew. Now Jesus asked this man a question. or this uh, the demons, I guess, a question. What is your name? I've always uh, wondered why Jesus asked that question because he would have known the answer to the question, right? He's God in the flesh. Perhaps it was to explain to people who are listening that demons are real. You know, the disciples are there, the townspeople are there, the pig farmers are there, everyone's there. And to explain that demons are very real, it's all very clear in the Bible that the spirit world is real. But probably Jesus wanted everyone to know that there is no name that's higher than his, not Legion. Not the demons, no other name. Jesus is the highest name. He is the highest power. Nobody has a higher position than him. This is a lesson that the disciples were going to need by the time they get to chapter 9. But there is something way, way bigger going on right here on this side of the lake than a conflict between uh, the Jewish people and the Gentile people and the social power of the day. The demons here knew that hell is real. They begged Jesus, don't throw us into the bottomless pit. The torturers of this man knew that their torture was coming, and they begged Jesus not to do that. Jesus gave them permission to enter into the pigs, and the pigs uh, go crazy. They run down the hill. They're drowned in the sea. Jesus saves this man. You could say he heals this man you could say he rescues this man you could say he delivers this man all those would be correct interpretations this man is now sitting clothed perfectly sane in his right mind he has met jesus and he is no longer the demoniac the pig farmers want jesus to leave they're afraid. They're probably overwhelmed. They're worried about financial loss. They're, they're, uh, their livestock is lying dead, floating in the water, right? The Jewish leaders, the pig farmers, the town peepers, they all want Jesus to leave. They all reject him. Everybody had heard what Jesus said. Everybody saw what Jesus could do. And yet, the vast majority of people on the Jewish side and the heathen Gentile side, most of the people rejected Jesus. There isn't a, a nice story here with a cute little bow. That's just not what's going on here. Vast disagreement and vast pushback against truth. Only one man on the other side uh, wants to be a follower. He begs Jesus. He says, I want to go, I I go back with you, right? Imagine his life for a minute. One minute he's controlled by evil. He's living a life of utter rejection and seclusion. He lives in a burial cave in a cemetery by himself. Probably no one would care if this man died. He's just a nuisance, right? The demons are destroying his life. He's lost. He's far away from God. He has no hope and he has no solution that he can possibly think about. He's stuck. He's the demoniac, right? Jesus comes to him as he is, a person far from God, a person controlled by sin, and he rescues him. That's what Jesus does. And the next moment, he's delivered. The demons are gone. He's sitting clothed. He's in his right mind. He's got his body. He's got his, his spirit. And his, and his, he's back. He's no longer the demoniac, and he wants to follow Jesus, But in verse 39, we see what Jesus says. He says, This, no, go back to your family, tell them everything that God has done for you. And so this man goes through the town proclaiming the great things that Jesus has done for him. In effect, Jesus told this man to stay where he was in his own community and to tell his story. Don't follow me back to the Jewish side, they're not going to listen to you there anyway. Tell the people here the great things that God has done for you. You know, every faith story, every faith story of every believer has three parts. The first part is, who were you before you met Jesus? Who were you when your life was controlled by sin before Jesus was in the picture? That's the first part of a faith story. The second part is, what happened to you when you met Jesus? Normally, there's other people involved, there's circumstances. Something happened that you came face-to-face and understood that Jesus was real. It's the story that Deborah was telling. Uh, You know, there's a process where she got to that point where she believed, and Jesus saved her. The last part is, what is your life like now? What is God doing in your life now? What is the Holy Spirit teaching you today? Today? I know Deborah pretty well, and the change in her life is remarkable from what she was to who she is today. Three parts to the faith story, the before, the event itself, and what's true since then. The interesting thing about a faith story is that it's your story. It's a personal story, and no one can dispute it. You can argue about all kinds of stuff, but how can you explain Uh, dispute the personal experience that a person's had with God. Faith stories are always about a new identity. New identity that we have in Christ. Whatever our past, we can leave it there. And we can step into new identity. This man may have been a demoniac. But now, he's a Jesus follower. He's an evangelist. He's clothed, he's sane, he's in his right mind. He's able to tell his story to people who knew him before. This account points to a theology of sin and forgiveness as we study that in the scripture. You know, sin always destroys everyone and everything. That's the nature of sin. Anybody who thinks that they can kind of dance with sin and escape its power have missed the reality of what sin is and what sin will do to every person it grasps. This man's life before he met Jesus is a clear illustration of sin and its effects. He was controlled by sin, and sin was destroying his life. In time, he would die in his sin. Sin is like a cobra. It's, it's coiled and it's ready to strike, and sin will kill us if it's not for the grace of Jesus. Not everyone lives in the cemetery and shrieks at night like this man. That's true. But you know, every single person living separate from God on their own trajectory is actually uh, controlled by sin, living separate from God. And without salvation, without Jesus, sin will destroy them in the end. Don't buy the deception that you can control sin in your life and be a good person. Don't buy that deception. It's mistaken self-leadership, and it won't work. This demon-possessed man represents what sin does to all of us. It enslaves us. Um, sometimes we look at people like him and say, well, I'm not that bad, therefore I must be okay. But it's worth knowing how the Bible describes sin. It describes it itself as self-leadership, as radical autonomy from God. It's me doing me. But did you know that the Bible describes sin as alignment with Satan and his crew? That's how the Bible defines sin, Consider Ephesians chapter 2, beginning at verse 1. Paul is writing here to believers, and this is what he says. Once you were dead because of your disobedience and your many sins. You used to live in sin, just like the rest of the world, obeying the devil and the commander of the powers of the unseen world. That's walking in self-leadership. He is the spirit at work in the hearts of those who refuse to obey God. All of us used to live that way. Following the passionate desires and inclinations of our sinful nature. And by very nature, we were subject to God's anger, just like everyone else. He's telling the story of the demoniac, what it was like before he came to faith. You know, the Jewish people on the affluent side of the lake would not think of themselves as sinful. They thought they were doing okay. They were religious people. They were moral people. They were good people. They were pushing back against Jesus and this radical ideology he had. It's very common today for people to contrast themselves with people who are much worse than them and say, I'm not like those people, and to presume that they're okay. They say things like, those people, or those people over there who need God, those people. Those people. And they separate themselves from them. But you know, it's equally uncommon for most lost people that are far away from God to recognize that they're far from God. They're just living their lives the best they can. They're trying to be moral. They're trying to be good. Not recognizing that they're not with God. He's not part of their lives. Yet the Bible indicates living apart from God... Living on our own terms is actually alignment with the devil. That's how the Bible talks about sin. Everyone knew that this demonic, this demoniac was evil, that he was controlled by sin. Everyone knew that, right? But the Jews also were controlled by sin. The Jewish people lived in nice homes. They thought they were better than these dirty, rotten heathens on the other side of the lake. But actually, they were living in opposition to God, relying on their religious tradition instead of believing in Jesus. They were equally far from God. They had nicer homes, and they probably seemed to be okay. But they were resisting God in deference to their religion, and they were far from God. Speaking of these Jewish religious leaders in John chapter 8, Jesus calls uh, calls them out and he says, you know, your father is actually the devil. And the desires of your father, those are the ones you're following when you follow your own desires. Good religious people who reject Jesus are far away from God. Please take note. This demon-possessed man was under control of sin. And Jesus also said that these religious leaders who were nice religious moral people were also under the control of Satan. One guy cuts himself with stones in the cemetery, the other living moral lives. Both guys far away from God. In the end, whatever version of self-leadership we live, either way, we're far from God. The Jewish leaders rejected Jesus. The pig farmers, they rejected Jesus. The townspeople, they rejected Jesus. But there is great hope in this passage nonetheless. Jesus is teaching the disciples by taking them to the other side, this loud, loud gospel message. And it's this. Every person, no matter your circumstance, no matter how deeply affected by sin, no matter how much destruction is in your life, every single person is accepted by Jesus when they come to him. That's a loud message. Jesus went there to deliver that message in front of his disciples. Please consider what it says in the next couple of verses in Ephesians chapter 2, beginning in verse 4. God is so rich in mercy, he loved us so much. That even though we were dead, dead in sin because of our sins, he gave us life when he raised Jesus from the Lord. Now from the dead, it is by God's grace that you're saved. So, whether the presence of sin is dramatic or whether it's veiled by a life of morality and a good life, all people need the hope that's contained in the gospel. It's interesting, after Jesus heals this man and delivers him from his uh, state of uh, demoniac, uh, verse 35, he's healed, he's clothed, he's in his right mind. He's no longer the demoniac. He has a, a new identity. He's now a follower of Jesus. He's, he's actually an evangelist. He's telling his story to people on the other side of the lake. The townspeople, the pig farmers, they all want Jesus gone, right? The Jewish religious leaders, they had rejected Jesus. Even in the face of overwhelming evidence that Jesus is who he said he was. But this man, he begged to be with Jesus. Jesus sent him back to tell a story. Go tell your family all the good things that God has done for you. And so I would ask you this question. What about your faith story? What about the good things that God has done for you? Who were you before Jesus found you? What happened? How did it come about that you became a believer in Jesus? And finally, what is God doing in your life right now? Now we've talked a lot about different uh, trips that we've taken evangelism trips to Colombia and I want to talk about a story uh, not from the last trip but from a previous trip to Via Vicencia Colombia because it illustrates this point so clearly. We were telling our stories you get it down to about 60 seconds and you tell your story to a person in the street a person who's lost And then you use that to talk about the gospel and answer their questions and share what Jesus has done for you. And we were seeing uh, literally hundreds of people that were turning from sin and uh, saying yes to Jesus the first time uh, the members of the church were there with us as we were doing this. People were coming to faith. On Wednesday that week, we'd gotten back early. And uh, we were standing close to the church there, and somebody said, hey, let's go across that a wide-swinging bridge that goes to the other side, to the island. The, the river there split. There's like a big Y, and there was a community that lived between the forks of the river. Most of the people who were from there said, no, we're not going there. We just, we just don't go to the other side there. We just don't do that. But my translator said she'd go, and then a few other people said they'd go. And so I think four, maybe four or six of us went across that bridge to the other side. We got to a a home, and there was a teenage girl there, probably um, guessing by looking at her. And uh, she said, please follow me. And so we followed her. And she took us all the way back to the far side of this island. And we're like thinking, oh, man, this is like a rookie error here. We were like, we can't be seen by anybody. We're on the far side of this lake. It was like the most ridiculous thing I've done in a very long time. And as we go, there's like a bunch of construction workers, and they're all staring us down. And we're like, this is probably a mistake. Um, she's looking for her mom. And so we found her mom. Her mom was actually cooking the food for the construction guys. And uh, she and her mom and, and the two of us, uh, the three of us, we went back to, to her uh, house. We sat outside. Uh, under this canopy, this real, real poor home, and I shared my story, and we shared the gospel. And this girl and her mother, uh, you could see the smile on their faces. They, they willingly confessed their sins, and they asked God to come into their lives. And later, uh, the young girl told me, she said, you know, um, I went to that church on the other side not too long ago. And when I heard that you people were here, from that church, I wanted my mother to hear the gospel with me. These two had believed. They heard our story, they heard the gospel, and they believed. <clears throat> As we were going back, we went back to the other side, back to the church, and everybody was really surprised to see us. And they were like, "Oh, we don't go to the other side. <clears throat> it's dangerous there. In fact, if there's something that breaks out there, the police won't even go, because it's too dangerous. You know what we found on the other side of that little bridge? We found people over there. We found people uh, who were lost, people who had never heard the gospel, people that had been rejected by the church people. We found people uh, who were very, very interested in talking about Jesus. Jesus. Later that week, I talked to the pastor, and he told me that they had a new commitment as a church that they were going to go to the other side. They were going to take people over there. They were going to meet the folks on that side of the lake and explain the gospel to them. You know, this account of the demoniac turned evangelist from Luke chapter eight is fit right in the center of Luke uh, just before uh, what's going to happen in Luke chapter nine. This is kind of a training event, I think, for the disciples. Jesus went deliberately to where lost people were to share the gospel. And this little trip to the other side with the disciples was a little bit like a training mission with these men. There were lots of Jewish people who were lost. Jesus could have talked to them instead. But he took the disciples to the other side, to this one man. Why did he... Do that. Why didn't he stay back on the Jewish side where it would be safe? Well, probably it's the story of the 99 and one. You know, Jesus left the 99 who are already believers to go find the one who was not. It's probably that. But I also think Jesus was preparing the disciples for what was going to come next. If you look forward to Luke chapter nine, you see Jesus is going to send the disciples out two by two to share the gospel. They're going to cast out demons. They're going to invite people to repent of their sins. They're going to introduce the gospel to lost people who are far away from God. This is kind of the end of the training mission. These disciples of his are going to become fishers of men. This is the heart of Jesus for lost people to find genuine hope. Every genuine believer... Has a story to tell. You have a story to tell because every believer has experienced the supernatural work of the Holy Spirit. When the Holy Spirit saves us and the process of spiritual transformation comes as we, we're reading the scripture and the Spirit of God is working and our, our lives are being transformed, like what we saw in Deborah on the video just a, a minute ago, we have a story to tell because Jesus is in our lives, and he is transforming us. And so I'd like to ask you to do something this week. Uh, You'll notice on the back of the blue card, there's a place where you can check the box that you're going to write your story. I would encourage you to actually take a pen and a piece of paper this week and to write your story. It's not a long story. It's not a book. It's maybe a sheet, maybe two at the most. It's something you can talk about in 60 or 90 seconds, what was your life like before you met Jesus? What were the circumstances that brought you to faith? And what is God doing in your life right now? How is the Holy Spirit working in you? That little story can be the bridge point for communication, a gospel communication with somebody who's lost. I'd like to ask you to check that box and to plan to spend 10 or 15 or 20 minutes this week writing your story. Those same questions are printed inside your bulletin. So once you drop the card in the offering plate, uh, the cards, the uh, questions are there in the bulletin for you to look at. I would like to think the Lighthouse community can be uh, begun begin thinking more and more about what it means to tell our stories with intention. What if? Every person here began praying for a person they knew who was far away from God. Somebody in the neighborhood or somebody in the family or maybe even a family member. What if we started praying for the 50,000? What if we started praying for divine appointments? You know, where God sets up the appointment for you to share your story with someone who needs hope. What if we started praying for that? I wonder what God might do through you. One final thought. It's very odd to me that this man's name is never revealed in this passage. That's odd. We don't know what his name is. Perhaps the reason that that's true is so that I can insert my name. Think about it. I was the one who was lost in sin and far away from God. Other people spoke into my life, and I heard the gospel, and I believed. And now I have a new identity. Jesus is changing me. The Holy Spirit's changing my life as I read the scripture and as I pray. It's an active living process. And the reality is this. Every single believer has the same story, that God is in their life. I'd like to read from 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Paul is writing to the Corinthian believers here, and this is what he says. Don't you realize that those who do wrong will not inherit the kingdom of God? People in your life who won't be with God if they stay in their sin. Don't fool yourselves. Those who indulge in sexual sin or worship idols or commit adultery or male prostitutes or practice homosexuality, thieves and greedy people and drunks, abusive and cheaters, they're not going to inherit the kingdom of God. That's a terrible list. But then he talks to the people kind of very, very frankly. Some of you are just like that. But you were cleansed. You were made holy. You were made right with God by calling on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. This unnamed man's story is our story of what God has done for us. Jesus saves people living in deep despair far away from him. He also saves people holding on to old traditions. And he saves people in Findlay, Ohio. And it's always the same pathway. A person hears the story of grace from someone and they hear the gospel. And in humility, they confess their sins and ask Jesus to save them. And the miraculous love of God uh, is applied and people come to faith. Christians have the light of God in them. And if you tell your story, there's a pretty good chance God will use you to affect the eternity of another person. Tim Keller says this, The gospel is this. We are more sinful and more flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. Yet, at the very same time, we are more loved and more accepted in Jesus Christ than we had ever dared hope. We're going to go to a time of prayer now. Um, and uh, we're going to have prayer partners in the corners. Uh, this is your time to, prayer, uh, to pray. Um, some people come to faith in a hurry. And some people come to faith after considering the claims of Christ over a long period of time. Either way, God is inviting us to know him. And this morning, if you'd like to pray with somebody in the auditorium, please feel free to do that. We'd encourage you to do that. It's always good to pray with somebody. But first, there'll be one more song. Let me First, let me pray for us. God, we come to you as our creator, the living God. And I pray by the power of your Holy Spirit that you would move in the hearts of all of us, that we would recognize your tremendous grace, that we would see the power of our own stories, and they would use us to share the gospel, we know that's your heart. I pray for each person today who needs to pray. I pray that they would pray with a prayer partner or maybe pray in their seat. I pray this through Jesus, amen.
0: Thanks for joining us. If you'd like to learn more about Lighthouse Community, check out our website at mylighthousecommunity.com or connect with us on Facebook. You're invited to join us live Sunday mornings at 909 or 1111. Thanks again for listening to the Lighthouse Community Podcast.